It is with excitement that I get to share with you that the Leukaemia Foundation has developed a new resource. This resource is called the Online Support Service, where it provides a wealth of services to assist a person living with blood cancer throughout their patient journey. So whether you're a patient who has just been diagnosed, in treatment or in survivorship, this service provides access to targeted learning modules, a suite of amazing services and online programs. And you also have the ability to chat with an experienced blood cancer support coordinator at just one click. It gives people a personalised and intuitive way to learn about important topics, including what to expect beyond treatment. This service is simple to use and is filled with content curated by the Leukaemia Foundation for people with any type of blood cancer. It notably features a digital energy coach to help patients manage fatigue. So jump onto our website and look up our new and exciting product called the Online Blood Cancer Support Service. Hi, and welcome to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer. My name is Kate Arkadiff, and my role at the Leukemia Foundation is a blood cancer support coordinator. We provide emotional and practical support to people living with blood cancer and their loved ones. Our support is offered throughout the many different stages of a blood cancer journey. While listening to this podcast, we will share the stories of people we have connected with who have faced blood cancer so that you, our listeners, can gain insight, find purpose and take inspiration. The Leukaemia Foundation acknowledges the traditional owners of the country throughout Australia and recognises their continuing connection to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This story may contain content that some listeners may find difficult and challenging. We encourage anyone listening to take care of their own mental health and well-being. The purpose of this podcast is to share the real-life stories of people living with a blood cancer, and any discussion of medical treatments is not an endorsement. We encourage you to seek the advice from your treatment team if you have any questions regarding your diagnosis, side effects, or treatment. If you would like to talk to someone or even if you would like more information on our services or on today's episode, please feel free to contact 1-800-620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. So let's get into today's episode. Today you will hear the story of the inspiring Clinton Parmenta. Clinton was living life in the fast lane, socialising with friends, spending time with his family and working hard in his job, when one day his life was turned on its head. Clinton was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukaemia. Marianne Scapara speaks to Clinton to hear about how he harnessed a positive mindset throughout his journey. Hi, Clinton. Thank you for joining us for the podcast series. Welcome here this morning. Thanks, Mary. To start off the conversation, Clinton, can you share with us all where you live and where you were at at diagnosis? What was happening for you? Um, so I live in Nebo, Western Mackay, as you've said, and uh, 
Yeah, I was in a good place in my life. I'd done a lot of stuff in my life. Didn't have any regrets. Was was going along full steam ahead. Never a dull moment. And um, yeah, all of a sudden I got stopped in my tracks. When you say stopped in your tracks, Clinton, um, how were you stopped in your tracks? And how old are you? How old were you at time of diagnosis? I was forty-eight, and uh, I live life at a million miles an hour. Never a dull mm-hmm. moment. Never a, an extra breath had to be taken. It was just always full steam ahead. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I did I did everything? Um, never sat around. Never watched TV. There was never enough time to watch TV. It was always uh, going here, going there, um, you know, seeing friends, talking to people, working. So, yeah, just never stopped. So what was it that stopped you? What were you physically, emotionally feeling at that time of diagnosis? So uh, I I felt really drained, uh, exhausted, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm. fatigued for probably three months up until diagnosis. It was just after Christmas and mm. I went to the GP and I, I've known my GP for years and I said, mate, there's something wrong, you know, I just don't feel well, you know. And he said, oh, you probably just had a few too many beers over Christmas. And I probably did. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he said, um, look, just, st- you know, keep doing your walking and, and I'll, do, I'll run some blood tests. And the next morning I got up and, uh, it's about six o'clock. Went for a walk with my dad, who was up visiting. Uh, mm-hmm. We walked out the front, and halfway back, I said, "No, nah, no good, Dad." I said, "It's all over." And he said, "What do you mean?" And I just collapsed. And wow. uh, my dad was seventy-two, and he started jogging back to to get a buggy to come and pick me up. And by the time he got back, I was coughing up blood. And, he took me back and I got in the shower and by the time I got out of the shower, my GP rang me and he said, get in here straight away. And um, Wow. Yeah, so that was it. That must have been a really emotionally frightening time for you and your family. It was. It's a, it's a shock. Um, oh, you know, when you, you don't ever realise uh, how vulnerable we are uh, in mm. life. It's mm. so um, so meaningful to have a life and, and you know, like I'm not saying that uh, I'm in a position where I've, I've had everything go my way. I've had to work hard over the years, but you get to a point in life where you think you're in control of everything and uh, mm-hmm. all of a sudden it gets taken out from underneath you, so... Yeah, quite a um, yeah, quite a surreal moment. So, what happened then, Clinton? Were you transported to hospital, or what happened? What were the steps, next steps for you at that time? Uh, so, my dad, my girlfriend, took me into um, the GP, and he sat me down and he just said, "Mate, he said, I'm sorry, you've got leukemia. I don't know what type, don't know how bad it is, but it's not good." Um, he said. I'm going to refer you to the Wesley, a bloke I know down there. He said, you get down there tomorrow. Flew down the next morning. Uh, they put me into the Wesley at a, a hemoglobin count. I think it was 59, which is pretty low. Mm. And, um, yeah, so they, they said I shouldn't have been there. And, wow. Yeah, that was it. It was, uh, yeah, really shocked, really shocked. 
Absolutely. So did you did you travel down with your dad or did anyone else come with you? How did how did people manage life around you in that moment? Because it, it is devastating when you get a diagnosis, especially for people like yourself who are so far away. Yeah, well, um, um, my mum and dad come with me and, and my girlfriend, Trina, uh, they come down with me on the plane. Um, yes. We went straight to the Wesley and uh, mum and dad lived down in Brisbane, so they went to their home. And, but we just didn't really know what to do. There was, um, mm. w- when you don't expect these sort of things to happen to you, you, you don't know where to call or where to look or who, who mm-hmm. to ask help for. Um, but yep. the people at the Wesley put us onto Leukemia Foundation and it just went from there. Right. So you had children at, the, at that time, young children? Yes, uh, youngest was two at the time. Wow. And uh, up to 20. And they're a little bit older than that now because it's three years on. Mm. Um, but yeah, they, they the kids sort of stayed here with their grandparents, the other grandparents, and um, yeah, we just sort of concentrated on what we needed to do as, as far as my health was concerned. Absolutely. So you arrived in Brisbane, um, and you were admitted to the Wesley Hospital. Yep. How was that time for you uh, emotionally when you're sitting in a ward and you've been told you had leukaemia? So how, you know, what did you draw on on a day-to-day basis to help you through that time? Or were there people there rallying behind yep. you? Um, I was always, always a bit of a character, I suppose, myself. And um, mm-hmm. a lot of my mates are in the same, same mould. They turned up there with funny hats colourful clothing. Oh. Um, they actually, uh, one of my mates went to Bunnings and collected all the, the colour charts and we started sticking them up in the ward um, in my room to make the room a bit, because hospital rooms aren't very colourful, of course, mm-hmm. but they mm-hmm. started sticking these up with blue tack all around the room to make all different colours in the room. So, yeah, look, it, it was very surreal, um, unexpected. You, you're around a lot of illness in the wards mm-hmm. um, and uh, it sort of made you probably feel sicker than than you actually were. So, mm. um, yeah. Because you didn't quite know what it was that you were dealing with. No. So I had no. a bone marrow biopsy that first week um, mm-hmm. and that's when they found out I had the uh, FLT3 mutation uh, in my right. gene, um, which isn't a very good prognosis. It's not what you want to hear. And they pretty much said, look, you know, we've got protocols that we follow. Uh, we can put you on to chemo, but we're pretty sure that chemo won't work with that uh, mutation in your gene. Um, you wow. Know, I guess from previous experience, they they know that it doesn't work. So. Yeah. So what were your options from that point on? Um, well, they pretty much told me I had three months maybe. That was it. Wow. How do you That's digest a- information like that, Clinton? Pretty pretty shocking at the start, but I mm. sort of grew mm. with it. I just – I sort of very quickly become accustomed in my own space to, hey, I had a pretty good life. You know, there's a lot of people out there that don't uh, live to be very old at all. Um and I thought, well, you know, if I've got to go through this to take one for the team so that my kids don't get it, my family members don't get it, my friends don't get it, then then that's fair enough because I did have a really good life and, and still do have a really good life. But um, I was so quite happy. So in some ways, 
Yeah, you, you, you were bargaining if this was my time. Is that what I'm mm. hearing? If, if this right. is my time, yep. I can view it that um, I'm actually okay. Yep. That's actually very brave. My That's very brave, in, Clinton. My mum came into the room after the first week and she said, look, is there anything on your bucket list that you want, wanted to do? Um, you know, anything at all that we can make happen for you. And I turned to my mum and I said, no, nah, nothing at all. I, I did everything I ever wanted to do. All I'd like is a bit more time with my kids. Um, mm. That was something that was probably and has always been the most important thing to me is my children, you know. They're, they're my lifeblood. They're everything to me. So um, That's, That is important to have a purpose because I do mm. think it's a driving, you know, to have something that you live for, something that you value so largely that um, it is that necessary ingredient that gives you that focus to take that step forward. Yeah. Yeah, we all have choices in life um, and mm -hmm. everyone's entitled to their own choice. Uh, I had that first lot of chemo and it was pretty horrific. Um, Love it. And uh, I just... After that first round, I just said, you know, this isn't from me. Um, I'll just let nature take its course. I just wanted to go home, sit on the veranda, let bygones be bygones and and uh, be pretty happy with what I'd achieved in life, you know, and the things I'd done. Um, I wasn't really looking forward as such, but I always had in the back of my mind, you know, what about the kids? What about the kids? Uh, what so are you they were at do? That, a fork in the road where you could go home yep. and accept what were what you know what was happening and where you were at health wise, yep. or what was the other avenue taking you? What pathway were you offered? So there was the the four rounds of chemo and then the stem cell transplant. That a was transplant. pretty much the only option. Um, mm -hmm. And that's if we could find a donor, a suitable donor. That was a match. Mm -hmm. I only had one brother, uh, no other siblings, and there is a one in four chance that your uh, sibling is a, a good match. Otherwise, you'd have to go onto a uh, register, bone marrow register, and um, wait for somebody that was a suitable match to come up to have a go at that. But I've always been somebody that looks into what goes on, how an engine works, how you build a house. I like to know how things work. So I started mm. doing research and the more I researched about stem cell transplants and what your body goes through, I couldn't fathom how this could work. How, how could right. you take something? I, could, I can understand an organ transplant that you can take this mm -hmm. and put it into this body and, and get it to work, but how can you get cells to grow inside somebody else, you, you, you're virtually creating another person w with a, with a, the outside of a car, you know. Mm. It, it's mm. You're creating something from scratch. And to me, it was just too surreal. Unfathomable. Too, yeah, it, it didn't make sense. So uh, how, you know, what helped you make that decision to go forward with Transplant? met these two lovely ladies at Leukemia Foundation, <laughs> one being yourself, of course, and I sat down one day once I'd made the decision that I wasn't going to do the transplant and I was going to go home. I uh, sat down with yourself and Amanda and, and my mum and dad and Tarina and 
we um, we had a little chat and uh, just looked at other options. And I think you, you ladies made me realise that, hey, you know, what about the kids? What about your mum and dad? Because my mum and dad have been my rock my whole life. My dad's my best friend. Um, mm. And it's just, did I want to go and leave them? You know, and no. I didn't. I didn't really. No. I don't believe you can ever get to these decisions by yourself. The mm. the more people you surround yourself with, uh, the the better it is. You know, the better choices you make. Uh, you've really got to have a clear mind. I mean, I was full of chemo. I was full of morphine from the pain. I w- I had so many drugs in me. One stage there, I was taking twenty four tablets twice a day, um, wow. plus plus IVs blood transfusions, mm. you know, it was just constant. So mm. I think your mind isn't in the best point of your life to be making judgment calls on your life, but you have mm. to make them choices. And the more family you've got around you, friends in your ear, uh, sort of guiding you, I suppose, and plus counsellors from it's also that spoken word. You know, you was, were someone was who was happy, um, Clinton, to have the conversation. So, mm. you know, in in sharing your inner head talk and hearing what you were processing inside your head, I think helped you get some clarity as to where you wanted to go. Yep, for sure. Yeah, y- your mind is very controlling at that stage. And, and as we've said, the choices people make, uh, I don't knock anybody for making the choice to go the other way or or mm-hmm. to the stem cell transplant, but that's your choice in life. That's what you have to accept. And uh, as time I'll went be on. be happy with your choice. Oh, of course, 100%. You know, like if I now what I, I'm in the stage of my life now where I know what I've been through and would I have made the same choice again, 100%, I would I'd make exactly the same choice again. But at that time, in that situation, I don't think you're thinking straight enough to make uh, the choice that's probably the better outcome for you to fight it. So, Yeah, no, very brave, very brave. And again, that, um, that ability, you know, when you look at clarity and you look at, um, you know, the power within, I think in that moment when you made that choice, um, to go forward with transplant, something in your whole mantra, in your the whole way you are going to approach that procedure and moving forward down that pathway was going to be one of putting that best foot forward. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say I ever give up, but once I'd made the decision to go to the stem trail transplant, it was 110%. Um, I had to know everything about it. I had to ask all the questions, you know, why does this work? How does this work? Um, they're probably not used to that, but I, mm. I had to know. I, I had to know what medications I was taking and what they were doing to my body and what this does, what, why we have to have a Hickman instead of a pick line, why, you know, all, all them things. You had to have answers to everything. Which is actually powerful for visu- visualisation, you know, yep. which I think may have in your you know, in your cognitive thinking, you would, may not have been aware that you were doing it, but that process of that information and understanding around what was happening in your body and what, you know, what you were receiving and how it was working and the reasons why, I think may have had, uh, you know, a very, very strong effect on on outcome and where you were at. 
Yeah, it, it kept the mind busy. So there's no truer yes. word than an idle mind is the devil's playground. You, you, so true. When you're sitting idle and you're laying there and you're thinking about nothing, you, you know, million thoughts go through your head and they're not always the best thoughts. But if you're researching something and looking into it, your mind is focused, it's looking forward, and you'll keep heading towards whatever goal you set. So. Yeah, that's actually a really good golden nugget for the listeners, you know, that importance of staying focused, of challenging yourself, of being, you know, invested in your own health and well-being. Yeah, yeah I think no matter what your diagnosis is, is, is if you want to beat it, then, then you've got to at least give it 110% and your mind's got to be right. The mind controls the body. I always go back to the, the engine analogy, whereas the, mm-hmm. it's an engine, you feed it the right fuel, it'll work good. If you don't do the right thing or if you don't map the program for it right, it won't function correctly. So you've got to give yourself mm-hmm. the best chance and to have the mind right is the best way of giving yourself the best chance. Absolutely. Now, knowing you, you went forward with transplant and how many days were you in in, um, in hospital post-transplant, Clinton? 99. Who was your donor? 99 uh, days. 99 days. I was in, uh, in hospital in, in 4W and uh, my donor was my brother who was a, okay. a, a pretty close to 100% match. Um, yeah, he's, so why uh, the lengthy stay? Um well, I had got an infection uh, early on. So uh, prior to me having the transplant, I, I got an infection in my Hickman, in my chest. Uh, that took me into ICU. I went into a coma for four days. After the first wow. night, they called my family in and said, look, you better say your goodbyes. He's not going to make it through the morning. I was in the coma for four days and woke up and said, all right, what's going on? Let's go. So. Yeah, we just wow. kept moving forward. But um, because I'd gone through that, uh, they say that once your body has gone through that sort of a process, it, it gives you a better chance of engraftment of the stem cell transplant. So oh. don't ask me how, but I, I've looked into it. But, yeah, it's apparently that, that does make it, when you've had an infection like that, that does make it better for the engraftment. So. Oh, okay. So for, out of a negative experience, yep. there is a positive outcome. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't hmm. I wouldn't say that you have to go into it, but that's what no. they always say. Well, it's like GVHD. They always say if you've, you've got a bit of GVHD after transplant, then that's always better for the, the graft to stay working fine, you know. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we all know that if people have an allogeneic transplant, that's a donor cells from someone else, that uh, there is a requirement for 100 days uh, post-transplant to, you know, um, that's the the benchmark to actually ascertain um, how you've gone. Over that time, what were some key things that you did to help you just get stronger and help you... Um, you know, recover and do well? So I walked a lot around the hospital, um, probably walked holes in the carpet more than a few occasions. Um, mm. Used to carry my machine with me because I had over 240 blood transfusions while I was in there. So mm-hmm. you're always hooked up to IV, up to your Hickman, or uh, I had pick lines in both arms at one stage as well. 
but um, just walked round and round the hospital, down to the coffee room, um, around the hospital a few times. It's not recommended, but, you know, the stronger I got, the better it was. Uh, mm-hmm. And then after transplant and I'd come back to Leukemia House at Dutton Park, I started to walk there as well. But it took me a month to walk 100 metres. So the muscle wastage from laying in hospital, um, it just really took its toll and it just took so long to get back. And and that's something I'd advise anybody that's going through this is to try and do something, in even if you're laying in bed, whether it's a gripper or a or a squeeze ball is to try and retain your muscle mass for as long as you can because it is so hard to get it back. That's a really good message. That is, and and it's also important. You challenged yourself by the sound of things yep. with your walking. So, did you set goals to improve the distance, or tell yep. us, share with us a little so bit about how you went about approaching that? After the month, and I got the hundred meters, I started to work my way around the block at Dutton Park. Mm-hmm. That took me another month. And then one day I I, um, I just snuck out of the room and I didn't tell anyone I was going, but I was headed to South Bank and that was 2.8 kilometres away. And I thought, no, nah, that's where I'm going. So I walked down to South Bank and uh, I made it. And I rang my mum and dad and I said, come and pick me up. I'm down at South Bank. And they said, how did you get down there? I said, I walked. And oh. Well, they weren't happy, but um, they took me down to their place. I sat there for the afternoon. I couldn't walk for four days after that. So, but <laughs> but I well, after the four days, I got back into it, and I just did it, and I did it more and more. And then, um, as my appointments come, you'd have appointments every day at the Wesley, mm-hmm. and you go from Leukemia House, and then it come to two or three days a week, down to two days a week, and in the end, I started walking from Dutton Park. Uh, leukemia house across to the wesley hospital which was nine and how long kilometers. did that take nine kilometers that's yep. a great effort yep. it used to take me nearly two hours so forest gump in yep. the making so i walked over there and back every time and and one day i walked back and i thought oh, i haven't been on a push bike for 25 years you know i should buy a push bike went past the bike store and i I thought, well, if I can walk 9Ks each way, I could ride a push bike. And I bought this bike and I pushed it out of the store and I got on it and I went about 500 metres and I pushed it all the way back to Leukemia House because I couldn't <laughs> couldn't ride it any further, couldn't ride up a hill. I thought, what have I done? So, Oh, wow. And did you keep on that challenge with the bike or did you just give that away? No, I kept at it. Um, so mm-hmm. my dad had always ridden. And his friend Jeff, uh, they used to come into Leukemia House every day and we'd go riding on the bike tracks for, from Leukemia House. We'd go into the city and down along the river and over to the Wesley and then back around and, and um, just did a little bit more each each day. And I used to, Dad used to go up a hill and I'd be pushing my way up a hill and he'd, you know, he's 72 years old and he's powering up these hills and here I am pushing and I'm sure people drove past and go, oh, look at that tired fella you know but um <laughs> I kept at it and I got all the hills in before I I left leukemia house and we were doing 50ks in the end so on the push bike so it was just stepping stones hey just from stepping one to another stone. to another and that's the physical you which is great messaging for people who are listening to this podcast 
how did it impact on the emotional you? What, um, you know, what exercises or what did you do to keep the emotional you? Um, so, it's very, you know, on, in a good space. Yeah, it's very frustrating, I suppose, when you can't uh, physically do something. So it weighs heavily on your mind. I just mm. kept saying to myself, well, just try and do that little bit more tomorrow. Just, just mm. do a little bit more. Eating was a big thing for me. So uh, what I ate really made me feel a different way. And why at one stage there when I was going through counselling, they told me to visualise a fruit that made me feel, you know, better. Something that I ate that mm. made me feel better. And mine was green grapes. Uh, mm-hmm. The fridge was always full of green grapes. And when I ate them, I felt better. So I used to have some green grapes before I go for a ride and do that little bit more. It just seemed to give me some sort of energy. Whether it did or not, I couldn't tell you. But that that was in my mind. That was making Again, it work. Again, the power of the mind. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so it was, it was good, really good. So when it came time to return home, Clinton, w- did you have any um, anxiety attached to being returning home and not having that safety net of a treatment team and whoever else was, you know, you, you, you gathered crew around you in Brisbane. Mm-hmm. Was there any anxiety in returning home to west of Mackay? I was scared out of my mind, to be honest with you. Yeah. I really was. Uh, once I'd been through that infection and been in that coma, we were only 20 minutes away in an ambulance, whereas we're an hour away from Mackay here. Mm. Um, so 20 minutes was a lot better thing. You, you did feel a safety net. It was very much people that you needed were around you all the time. Um, mm. so, t- so getting away from that, was it was frightening. It really was. Mm. It, it took a long mm. time for me to, to get back into normal life. I didn't, um, I didn't like it at all. Not one little bit. So, so ha- what did you do in those t- in during that time to help yourself? Just kept doing little bits, little bit more around here. You know, continued mm-hmm. with my walking, um, my riding. I still try and ride every day now, just to do things to just get your mind concentrating on something again. Because as you go along, you keep falling back into those little traps, and you've got to keep tapping yourself on the shoulder and saying, "Hey." Remember we were on this line over here. Let's get back on that line there. What do we need mm. to do to get back on that line there? Um, yeah. Even as 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 early as a week ago, you know, I still have those thoughts in my mind that, you know, what am I doing? And I always think back, well, I'm having a shower in my own shower at home where you can mm. walk outside and do whatever you want, whereas if, if I was back in hospital... Um, yeah, you, you don't have those options. You, it's Everything's planned around. You, you can't just go for a walk here, a walk there. It's got to get sign-out forms. You've got to have mm. people giving you stuff all the time, whereas you can do your own thing at home. So I think being at home is much better for me, but yeah. it is. Um, it was a very scary task to come home. Yeah. Do you think that you've changed as an individual? since your experience in Brisbane and how you, you know, the choices that you now make, um, you know, yep. how has the the experience of transplant and that changed you as an individual? 
I think it changes your mindset. Things don't mean as much as they used to. Mm-hmm. Um, that's on one end of the scale. On the other end of the scale, uh, you have very little tolerance for people anymore mm-hmm. after everything you, that, that your body's gone through. People's trivial little problems in that are massive in their world seem very trivial to myself. And, mm. you know, it, it's hard to deal with that. It's hard to because everyone's entitled to feel what they feel. People feel pain mm. differently. People go through things differently. But it's very hard to have tolerance towards people anymore. So mm-hmm. on, that, on that side of things, that scale, it, that's, yep. that's a massive um, change. On, on the other side of it, you know, I grow roses now, I, you know, 10 years ago, I was too busy trying to make money, trying to build something, trying to help people out. Um, you know, now you do take time to do the simple things in life and the old That bring you it, great joy. It does. And and it mm. sounds silly. It If you'd said this to me 10 years ago, I would have laughed and said, don't be silly. <laughs> that's, that's not going to happen. But, but you go through certain changes, uh, how you look at things. And um, mm. that's just that's just what it is. So, yeah. Do you feel more fulfilled as an individual with how you look at things um, now, or do you feel that there's still a sense of loss? Um, yeah, I feel a little bit lost sometimes. I have mm-hmm. very limited memory of before um, transplant, and I don't know why that is, but that that you know, I can tell you. Every drug I took, every little thing that happened to me from hospital on, but from there back to my childhood, I couldn't remember anything without going to a photo or or looking at somebody's name in your phone and it says, oh, they're from such and such, or that's the only way I really remember anything. Um, so it's affected my mind greatly in, in that aspect. Uh, you know, in sharing that, Clinton, um, you know, it, what I would see is that it's been such a such a significant event for you to have to have faced, to have gone through everything that you've shared here just in, in our conversation, um, you know, your acceptance and in, in wanting to go home initially but then making the choice to go forward and, you know, how you went about that decision making to where you are now and and that um, balance around recognizing what isn't really significant for you anymore but what you want to embrace more of and you know it's the focus your focus is quite different so it you know only time will shift those negative memories of your Brisbane experience because it's still only early days for you. You know, three yep. years, you mentioned, Clinton, three years isn't really a long period of time, but it's made such a significant difference to who you are as an individual. Yeah. It's been a real slog, you know, uh, post-transplant. Yeah. It's not just, um, you know, it's not a cure, it's a treatment. So mm-hmm. you, you're sort of processing Everything as you're going along, you're still dealing with it, but I'm liking it to manage it. You're trying to manage your body all the time. There's things you can and can't eat. There's things you can and can't drink. Uh, there's things you can and can't do. Uh, mm-hmm. You've got to manage everything to make make it as good as you can for yourself. Um, you know, like there's a lot of people worse off than I am 
you know, people mm. that that have other disabilities and that they, they have them for their whole life. I had 48 mm. great years before I started to deal with this. So you always got to look at the glasses half full or half empty. It's, you know, you always got to look at the positives out of it. You could, it's how you look at it and how you take it on and, and move forward with it. Yeah, yeah, that's very wise. That is, and your relationships, Clinton, in your life, um, how have they changed? You know, how are you? You know, have you got anything you'd like to share in you know relationships with your spouse, with your children, with extended friends? Yeah, I I think um, I, it changes everything. You know, with your children, um, with your girlfriend, with your partner, with your wife, with your parents, mm. with your friends. Mm-hmm. I think it does because it has changed you and how you look at things. So you're not the person you were before. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think I've become my brother, um, but, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of attributes that I've probably uh, seen in myself now that, that, you know, he's sort of more accustomed to. But mm-hmm. we're very close. We've always been very close, but we're very uh, rhetorical towards each other, you know. We're very sarcastic towards each other, but but that's mm-hmm. been our relationship, and I'm eternally grateful to what he's done to me. Um, mm-hmm. My mum and dad, they've always been close. Um, mm-hmm. They they've been a hundred percent behind me the whole time. Um, they always believed that I'd get through it, and uh, mm-hmm. nothing sort of I changed have. there because we were were so close. Um, my mm-hmm. girlfriend and I, we've, Karina, we've grown closer and as mm-hmm. well as the kids. Uh, we do a lot more together now. And um, I think I said to you the other day that the COVID side of things has even brought us closer because we've sort of been locked down with the mm. chance of getting infection. We're in the high risk category. So we've sort of been locked down. The kids had time off school uh, when the other mm-hmm. kids had time off school. So it meant more family time, spending time together. So to me, that was fantastic. It was a good Gold. thing. Yeah, yeah, it was a good thing to come out of a bad situation. Um, I see these poor people suffering down south and that all the time, and I can understand how they feel, but but there's always somebody that's in a worse situation than yourself. Um, yeah. Nine months in a hospital is, is a lot worse than being locked down in nine months in your home. So I think yeah. try and yeah. look at the best of it that you can, you know. Very true. So, so Clinton, just um, um, you know, for the people, for our listeners, uh, we always ask people who are interviewing if if you had three golden nuggets that you would like to impart to those who are commencing their journey with blood cancer, or you know, they they they've been given a date for transplant. What would be your three golden nuggets that you'd like to share with the listeners? Um, don't be scared. Uh, you, you, while you're trying to be scared, you're taking your vision away from looking at the positive outcome. You know, mm-hmm. so you, instead of being scared of what's in front of you, look, look at, look into it, research it, try and get all the information you can to give yourself the best possible chance of doing it. So don't waste your energy on being scared waste your energy on researching what's going to happen because the more you know, knowledge is power. The more you know, the better chance you'll have of trying to help yourself. So that's one. Um, ask questions. Get the support from the people that that 
you need the support from. Leukemia Foundation were absolutely fantastic. And if it wasn't for them, I really don't know where we would have been. But the help is out there. You've just got to ask the questions of the right people to get the right support. The support is there, 110% it's there. It exists. You've just got to reach out and ask for it. Don't, you know, it's there. Don't hold back. That's Don't hold lovely. Back. And the third one is just just appreciate the people that are around you, you know, the ones close to you. They'll be there in the end. You know, the people that use you in life, they fall off by the wayside. They come and go. But the people that are really your friends and, and family. And love you. And love you. They're there no matter what. It doesn't matter what you've done or who you've been nasty to or who you've, you know, I don't know. Just it, it is about family and friends that really love you. And, and the more family and friends you can be around you in that time, the better chance you've got to recover. And it also gives you the ability to look forward to, you know, I want to spend more time with my children, my partner, my family. That gives you another goal to work towards and, and a reason to live. You know, so. Absolutely. That's wonderful, Clinton. Look, thank you. I, I know I bet you can't believe that 40 minutes has passed. Um, oh. I think that's I think that's lovely what you've shared, just an insight into, you know, what happened in your life and how you faced different obstacles and adversity and just that valuable um, sharing of, you know, what the choices that you made, those little challenges that you put in front um, of yourself with the exercise, with you know the the your thought patterns and the challenges of get to know research something know your body be the mechanic you know um who that analogy of the of the of the car you know just know know your machine know your body do your research and and look after yourself as an individual very valuable valuable life lessons Thank you, Clinton. You've been quite instrumental in supporting us as an organisation and I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for that as well. So, Thank you, thank you. you made a massive difference to my life, so thank you so much. My pleasure. That brings us to the end of this episode today. We hope that you've found it helpful in some way and if you would like more information on our services or today's episode, please feel free to call 1-800-620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Kate Arkadiff and you've been listening to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer.